Welcome back to the Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale, a podcast where we are examining a triple murder that took place over six decades ago, back in 1960, at the scenic Star of Rock State Park, located in LaSalle County, Illinois, along the banks of the Illinois River, where three women were brutally bludgeoned to death. My client, Chester Weger, was a 21-year-old dishwasher at the Star of Rock Lodge, who was arrested for the brutal crimes, convicted, and served over 60 years in prison. Chester's currently 83 years old and out of prison on parole. We've been making the case on this podcast that Chester Weger was wrongfully convicted of these horrendous murders. Today, we're going to talk about Chester's 1961 criminal trial. We have a lot to talk about. Let's begin. When Chester Weger went to trial in 1961, it was heralded by the media as the trial of the century. Throngs of people, ranging from hungry journalists to curious citizens, lined up outside the LaSalle County Courthouse in Ottawa, Illinois, to try and get a coveted seat in the gallery. The quiet Illinois Valley community had never seen a spectacle of this kind. The press, armed with giant cameras and blinding flashbulbs, waited for the police to pull up and escort the accused into the courtroom. Some reports glamorized the affair and said Chester Weger looked like a matinee idol, while others took a more somber tone and said he looked like a man resigned to his grim fate. The Weger family had pooled what few financial resources they had to hire Chester and attorney John McNamara. But even with a fine lawyer like McNamara, Chester was facing a prosecution with its vast resources that was interested in nothing less than the death penalty, execution by 50,000 volts. Three women were dead and someone needed to pay. The public needed their pound of flesh and the state needed to put this case to rest. After a three-week trial, the jury returned its verdict guilty. But the question that haunted jurors long after the trial had ended was whether or not the right man had paid. Did the state take their pound of flesh from the real killer? Chester had confessed. The state lined up witness after witness who claimed to corroborate some detail of the prosecution's narrative. And yet, even when it was all over, the jury of 12 was still left with doubts because the facts of the case simply left them with more questions than answers. Those doubts were evidenced by the fact that, despite this horrendous crime, the brutal bludgeoning of three innocent women, the jury elected not to sentence Chester Weger to the electric chair as the state had demanded. The jurors were never told. The state had forensic reports that said a hair found at the scene didn't match Chester. The jurors were never told that the state crime lab had ruled out the tree limb as being the murder weapon. There was so much that the jurors were never told. Instead, they were given a partial picture, and they knew it, because when their moment of truth came, they erred on the side of life for Chester, just in case they got it wrong. It's likely his resolve to prove his innocence that has kept Chester alive all these years. For 62 years and counting, Chester Weger has been waiting for that evidence, 
that full picture to finally emerge and definitively reveal that yes, they got it wrong and the real killers have never been brought to justice. Whitney, here we are at episode 10. Time continues to fly by. Even though I would love to continue talking about the smoking gun, Lois Zelensek memo, Palmateer Brothers, and Smokey Rona, we're going to pause today to discuss Chester Uyghur's criminal trial. I think this is an important topic. We're taping this episode on Monday, April 25th. I spent the past weekend going back over all the trial transcripts, literally all day on Saturday, all day on Sunday. And after spending all this time going back over the trial, I could do an entire podcast just on Chester Uyghur's criminal trial. I got to tell you, reading this was upsetting. It was emotional. Knowing what I know now, to read through this trial and see how the case was argued to the jury and how it was presented really took a lot out of me, I got to tell you. So we're taking a longer road trip today, Whitney, than usual, because there is so much to talk about. Is your seatbelt fastened? It is. All right, let's get into it. So to put it in context, Chester was arrested in mid-November of 1960. The trial started on February 13th, 1961, and it went until March 1st, 1961. So a three-week trial, which is a pretty long trial. Here's what struck me initially. Oh my gosh, three months from the time of arrest to trial. Three months. So little time to prepare. I mean, I, if I had a trial like this, I'd want a year mm -hmm. to get ready for it. My last big trial last November for the city of Chicago, we had four lawyers in the courtroom. Four lawyers, you know, divvying up the case. And we had more people back at the office helping us. This is one guy, John McNamara. I'm going to talk about him. He is my hero, just like Lois Zelensek, who is a hero. John McNamara, what he did in this trial, I was so impressed. There's two weeks of jury selection. You had to go through everybody in town talking about the case. And let me also say this. We've talked about this. Let's just say it again to put it in context. This trial in 1961 is prior to two landmark Supreme Court decisions that get decided in the mid-60s. Brady versus Maryland. Let me remind everybody, that's the case that held that the state has to turn over to a criminal defendant potentially exculpatory information, okay? So for instance, exculpatory means something that might proves you might be innocent. Mm -hmm. Oh, we got a witness statement who said they saw somebody else in St. Louis Canyon. Oh, we heard somebody else and, you know, they confessed to the crime. Or we got hairs that don't match Chester Uyghur, like we do. We've got that, yeah. we've got that November 23rd Washington University medical report. That didn't have to be turned over. So this trial is taking place at a time when the state does not even have to tell Chester Weaker about potential exculpatory evidence. And it's also prior to Miranda versus Arizona, which is the case everybody knows about, that when you're arrested, you have to be advised of your Miranda rights, that you have the right to remain silent, everything can and will be used against you, you have the right to an attorney. If you can't afford one, which Chester couldn't, 
one will be appointed prior to that. Yeah. Okay. So that's the context of when the trial took place. All right. And as I said, Chester's represented by John McNamara and the state is represented by two guys at trial, Bill Richardson and Tony Reculia. Let me just tell you a little bit about them. John McNamara is a private attorney, but he's this small town attorney, did taxes, domestic violence, bankruptcy, divorce. He's not some bigwig criminal defense attorney, but I got to tell you, and I'll say it again, I'm going to say it throughout this episode. I'm going to point out things he did that I thought were outstanding. I was so impressed what he did in so little time by himself, Yeah, one guy by himself. The state had so many more resources. So they had Bill Richardson and Tony Reculia. Let me pause there. Tony Reculia, as we've talked about, is he fresh right out of law school at the time? Yeah, he was 26 years old and uh, yeah, had literally uh, just graduated from law school. Isn't it weird? Let's, let's just pause. Isn't it weird? And kind of the trial of the century, the state's attorney's office is going to say, hey, you know what? Let's put this kid right out of law school on the case. Why is he getting assigned to the case? Yeah, I mean, the speculation is that his dad was the alderman. And so, you know, you, you put in the guy that you know will do the job that you want him to do for a specific agenda. I thought that was odd, but uh, let's continue. Okay, so here's another piece of background. This I thought was really interesting. People need to know this. Chester was only charged and only tried this trial is only about the murder of Lillian Oding, okay? Mm -hmm. He is not going to trial for the murders of Francis Murphy, Emil Delinquist. People may ask, well, why? That seems odd. Why wasn't Chester charged with the murders of all three women? Well, the answer is very telling. We touched on this in episode six. I talked about this continuing legal education seminar that took place in Illinois on May 22nd, 2010, titled The Murders at Starve Rock. It's on DVD. It was videotaped. I have it. I've watched it several times. Chester's attorney, Donna Kelly, was there. Former prosecutor, Tony Reculia, was there. What Tony Reculia said at that seminar, this is stunning. We talked about this in episode six. I believe that the psychological impact that was produced by deputies Dummett and Hess convinced me that Chester would probably have confessed at some point. Remember that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Tony Reculia admitted because of that, he was worried that the court would find Chester's confession to be involuntary. Isn't that stunning? Yeah. He, he was concerned, like, this confession is, it very well may get barred which means it would not be admissible at trial. And you'd have to go to trial with what? What else did they have? Nothing. Nothing. So what he did was he said this. I thought this was incredible, an incredible admission. He admitted that because of that concern, he only tried Chester with the murder of Mrs. Oding because his strategy was, oh, if Chester gets, if the confession's barred and I can't use it mm -hmm. and Chester gets acquitted, you know what? I'm going to try him again for either Miss Murphy or Miss Lindquist. Couldn't use the confession, but I'm going to try him again. That's how worried he was, Whitney. Yeah. That's how much he knew it was shady that the confession that they got, right? Yeah. And so that's the context of how the trial started. And a couple other things. There was no physical evidence linking Chester to the crimes. There's no witness linking Chester to the crimes. The state's case was based on Chester's purported confession 
which as we discussed in episode six, everyone knew made no sense. And let me remind everyone what former prosecutor Tony Reculia said during that May 26, 2010 legal seminar. Here are some of the quotes. My problem was I didn't believe the confession. That story to me makes no sense. This can't have happened this way. This is absolutely ridiculous, okay? Yet, the absolutely ridiculous confession became this cornerstone of the state's case. So what did the state do? It knew it had this phony baloney confession. Everybody Mm -hmm. knew it was ridiculous. So the state tried to build a case of other circumstantial evidence in an effort to bolster this absolutely ridiculous confession. So let's go through it. You ready to walk through the trial? I I am. Yeah, let's do this. All right. Um, In a lot of this, I apologize to people right now. It's a little tedious. I'm going to do my best to walk through it, but I think it's important to bring out a lot of these details and really explain the trial. Let's start with the jacket. So the state made a big point about the jacket. This is what the state argued to the jury. I'm reading it verbatim. And I submit, ladies and gentlemen, that the blood was deposited on this jacket because this defendant was using these weapons, these binoculars and that camera and that log, pounding, pounding, pounding into the head of Miss Oding. Okay, that's how the state argued the case. And now I've got to remind everybody about the injuries that Mrs. Oding suffered. I'm going to read verbatim from how the state described her injuries in the closing argument. Just a warning. It's very graphic. You don't want to hear this. Turn the volume down or fast forward. But I'm going to read these portions verbatim from the state's closing argument. She had multiple bruises on her chin and her upper jaw was fractured on both sides. Her eyeball was exploded from compression. She had fractures of both sides of her upper jaw. She had her teeth knocked out. Her left ear was partially torn off. Her scalp was partially torn away. She had a depressed skull fracture. There were so many fractures that Dr. Maloney couldn't even begin to count them. Her skull was detached from her spinal column. This poor woman. Oh my gosh, this is just unbelievably tragic and horrible. So the state summed that up by saying it was one of the most barbaric, gruesome sights that any living man could view. The reason I'm bringing this up, I want to talk about the blood on the jacket. How would you describe that attack, what you just heard? What would you, how would you describe that kind of, those injuries? Well, that, that, that's devastating. It'd be catastrophically devastating to the person. It would be a scene of utter gore. There'd be blood everywhere. It'd be carnage. It's carnage. Right. Carnage. Yeah. And then the state also said as to Miss Murphy, the state argued that Chester beat her and then used a fireman's carry. Can you explain what a fireman's carry is? Yeah. So a fireman's carry is is literally you you take a limp person's body or someone who's, who's incapacitated and you sling them over generally your right shoulder uh, and then just carry that person over your shoulder out of a dangerous situation. It is, I'm saying this from personal experience, I have never been able to successfully do one. When I was an EMT, I couldn't do it. I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have the physical strength. It is very wow. hard to do. They always wow. show it in movies. 
Mm. They always show a fireman carrying movies as though, oh, yeah, I guess house- now that I think about it, it would yeah. be hard. <laughs> the house is on fire. Oh, let me throw, you know, I, I'm five nine and I'm pretty strong. I have never physically been able to do it. It, it is it. Hmm. You you might be able to get the person over your shoulder, but then walking through uneven terrain carrying someone incredibly hard. So I just I just want people to to you know uh, separate what you see in movies from the reality of a fireman's carry. It's tough. So with all those horrific injuries in mind, the states claim a pounding, 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 Miss Odin with a log, and the claim that Chester Weger carried Mrs. Murphy over his shoulder. Yeah. In a fireman's carry into the cave. Let's go back to the buckskin jacket. So the state called an FBI witness. You know what he testified to uh, about the blood on the coat? Minute spots. Not possible. The FBI witness, he testified blood the size of a pinpoint. He said there were several of these, but minute spots Mm -mm. the size of a pinpoint. Are you kidding me? After a crime like this, where three women were brutally bludgeoned, and then you've got, allegedly, Chester carrying Miss Murphy over his shoulder, she'd be bleeding all over him. I mean, does that... Does that make any sense no, at I'll, all? I'll die on this hill, Andy, that there's two things that just do not compute for me. Is that one, there is no... Okay, let. Uh, I think it's highly unlikely that Chester had the physical strength to do the fireman's carry and then walk through the uneven terrain. But then on top of that... The injuries described in the autopsy would result in just a bloody mess. I'm sorry. And if you slung someone over your shoulder, there would be staining all over that jacket. There's no way it would be a particulate spray. I just, I'll die on that hill that that's just, that is not possible unless that jacket was somewhere else, you know, but, but. Well, well, then we're changing the whole story, right? Exactly. 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 And let's remind everybody, what does, what does Lois Zelensek, the telephone operator here, the bloody. Yeah. Overalls are in the trunk of the car. The bloody overalls, right? Yeah. They're so <laughs> bloody, they're still kept because they're so incriminating and the guy's afraid of getting caught. Okay. Yeah. So that's the jacket. That was extremely weak. Okay. That did not, was not consistent at all with this crime scene. So the jacket is one. Let's talk about number two of the state trying to build a case. The alleged scratches on Chester Weger. Okay. Chester testified at trial that he did cut himself shaving. He had some little bruise. That's what he said. Okay. But the state brought in this parade of witnesses who, you know, people that worked at the lodge. Uh, it was overwhelming. I mean, I, it, it's just John Castillo. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'm going to go through these kind of in order and I want to, I want to kind of bake this in. This is how the state presented the case. John Costello, he was a host at the lodge. He said he saw a scratch on Chester's face. And I love this. This is where McNamara, he did exactly what I would have done. When you get a witness telling you something that you don't really believe, you want them to embellish it, right? Mm-hmm. You want to be like, oh, yeah, it was a 10-inch scratch, and I could see it from a mile away, and there was blood <laughs> dripping down his face. Like, You want them to really embellish it. So even though he only said a scratch on his direct examination, McNamara asked him, well, what kind of scratch did you see? And Costello says, oh, it was a long scratch. McNamara says, well, how long was it? Oh, you know, it was three inches. And then he says he could see blood. You know, I mean, he really embellishes it. And I thought that was really smart by McNamara because you want, that's what you want to do in a situation like that. Yeah. You know, so Costello's talking about a three-inch scratch. He can see blood. Then they called Emil Bohm, a janitor. He talked about scratches and then he talks about scratches on the chin, something Costello didn't mention, mention. scratches on the chin. And then McNamara asked him on cross, 
how many scratches did you see? I don't know. You see more than one? Yeah. Can you tell me how long they were? No. You know, so he tried to flush it yeah. out. Let's Can keep I just, going. Wait, yeah, Andy, go could I just throw in a, a little point of interest here? Trivia. Emil Bohm, Smokey Rona's brother-in-law. Oh, my gosh. Married wow. to Alice Rona. Yeah. Wow. So just FYI. Hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. Glenn Kamati, who worked in the lodge, okay? What does he say? He testifies for the state, a large bruise he saw, high on the cheekbone, several small scratches, okay? He testifies to all this, but then, this is incredible, McNamara is able to bring out the fact that there was a report done, like this was transcribed. He makes the state produce the report right there in court. He's never seen it before. And then he brings out in court right there that this is a statement from October 3rd, 1960. See, what happened is in October, they're trying to pin this all on Chester Weger. So they're going back and they're re-interviewing people, all these people from the lodge. Mm -hmm. They're trying to get them to find dirt on Chester, say they saw scratches. Bear in mind, Glenn Kamadi just talked about all these injuries. And then they bring up, when they get the written transcript from this October 3rd interview, it says, did you notice any cuts or bruises on Chester's face that Monday or Tuesday? This is what he says. What is this? The scratches that everybody's talking about. I didn't notice them. The remark was made by one of us. He said he had a close shave. I never seen the scratches. Are you kidding me? <laughs> He's being impeached with his interview statement from October, yeah. which McNamara didn't have until that moment in court. I was like, wow, what an amazing job he brought that out. But let me keep going. I'm only about halfway done. Irma Bazinski mm -hmm. worked in the kitchen. She talked about seeing scratches above the eye, some on the face, the neck, a bruise on the eye. She said she told this to Dummett and Hess. Isn't that convenient? Lewis Reeves, who did the silverware, they bring her in. She talks about uh, scratches up and down Chester's face, a bruise, both sides of his face, long scratches. She even talks about scratches, Whitney, on Chester's chest. Are you kidding me? Was, was Chester his, shirtless at the lodge? Uh, um. Somehow she saw this. Somehow she saw this. And I got one more. Maddie Robinson, a salad chef, talks about, didn't see anything on March 14th or 15th, but on March 21st, she saw bruising around his eyes, but nothing until then. Okay, so my point is this. This was a parade of witnesses. It, yeah. it was overwhelming. And I could see if you're on the jury, you'd think, well, gosh, could all these people be lying? Well, you know what? My answer is yes. They all could be either lying or embellishing. The answer is yes. It absolutely could. And here's how McNamara argued this in his closing argument. I thought this was well said. Here's what he said, quote, none of the employees took notice of the scratches at the time during the week of March 14th. Why? Why, when the new investigation launched in September by the state's attorney's office, in view of the coming elections on November 7th, with proper refreshing of memories and leading questions, all these employees were able to recall scratches of some kind. I thought that was an excellent point. There was no contemporaneous account of anyone seeing scratches and bruises on Chester's face in the days following the murders. And I want to give you an example. You know, a leading question for people is, instead of saying, did you see Chester Wigger at the lodge? Yes. What did you observe? Asking a general question. A leading question is, 
did you see scratches on his face? Yeah. You're suggesting the answer. So in trial, in court, on direct examination, you can't ask a leading question to a witness. You can't say, hey, did you see scratches on Chester's face? You have to say, what did you observe? Okay, I want to give you an example. I went back to my file, and I wanted to see some of these interviews that Craig Armstrong did with Lodge employees in October, trying to dig up dirt on Chester Weger. So I've got a two-page transcript question and answer. I'm going to put this on the website. And this is Craig Armstrong on October 12th, 1960. And I'm sorry if I'm talking too fast with you. I am wound up. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. <laughs> Victoria Hobneck, okay, is interviewed October 12th, 1960. I'm going to read you some of the questions. Question. Do you remember seeing Chester that week, say on Thursday or Friday? Answer. If he was there, I suppose I seen him. Question. Do you remember if he had any scratches on his face? Answer. I couldn't tell you. It's so far away. Question. Do you remember hearing any talk about his having scratches on his face? Answer. No, sir. Question. Not a word? Answer. No. I mean, he won't let it go. He won't take no for an answer. Question. So you couldn't recall whether or not he had any scratches on his face? I mean, can you believe he's still asking her this? <laughs> answer. I couldn't remember. It's a long time ago. I don't remember. Have you? And he keeps going. Have you heard any talk about them recently? No. And then he continues, question, he's never made any passes at you? Answer, no. Then he goes back. I mean, she said no yeah. five times. He goes back. We're just curious about these scratches. He has told us about them. She says, if anyone would have said anything, I would have looked for them. He says, you don't think he'd be capable of doing anything like this? She says, no. And then he says, Chester drinks too, question mark. She says, I couldn't tell you. This is what was going on, Whitney, in October. This is shameful. It's the state's attorney's office trying to dig up dirt, trying to get people to say they saw scratches on Chester's face. And let's, even if he cut himself shaving or there was a scratch, yeah. it doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove that Chester committed these murders. And I just found that interview with that Victoria Hobnock so telling because that just showed you the modus operandi of the state's attorney's office in their quest to pin this on Chester. And by the way, attorney McNamara, to his credit, he called witnesses at trial. Nick Spirals, who ran the lodge, you seen anything on Chester? No. Josephine Schmidt, the bookkeeper, you notice anything? No, didn't notice anything. And there's so many things with these scratches I want to talk about. I'm not done with this topic yet. Lillian Odin was the only one, they argued, the state argued, Miss Lillian Odin was the only lady dude who did not have gloves on. Remember that? Yes, yes. Okay, there is nothing in Chester's confession about Mrs. Odin attacking him. All that is being done by Mrs. Murphy, okay? Mm -hmm. And the police records show Mrs. Murphy was wearing gloves. She was. Yeah. And here's another point in the scratches. The fingernails, okay, of these women. Let's take Mrs. Odin. So I want to go back to, I've referred to this many times. Remember these March 20th, 1960 handwritten notes, those two yes, pages? Yes, I do. I do. There is a treasure trove of helpful information for Chester Weger in those notes, if only he would have had access to them. But there's handwritten notes that say, and this is after the sheriff's department and state's attorney's office are briefed by the crime lab. Mm -hmm. It says, quote, nothing under the fingernails. Yeah. Wow. 
So if, if there's scratches, oh, three-inch scratch, face, neck, everywhere up and down his face, there would be something under Miss Odin's fingernails, and there is not. But let me put the scratches to bed right now and blow the scratches out of the water and end this debate. Okay, so after reading all this testimony about the scratches and the bruises, I mean, they went on and on about this, Whitney. They paraded witness after witness after witness. This is how desperate they were. I went back and I remembered there was a there was a memo. This is a super interesting, powerful memo. Two-page report dealing three interactions that the Illinois State Police had with Chester in March. March 18th, 1960, March 20th, 1960, and March 26th, 1960. These police interviews were conducted by Sergeant Hall, Corporal Raisins, and Trooper Lothorpe. Illinois State Police, let me note, it is not the LaSalle County Sheriff's Office or the State's Attorney's Office. So it's not Dummett and Hess and Warren. It's the Illinois State Police. So the first interview with Chester is on March 18th, 1960. This is just two days after the women's bodies were found. The report lists Chester's name, his address, his birth date. It notes he's a dishwasher at the Starve Rock Lodge, and it states, I'm going to read a quote. This subject was interviewed on March 18th, 1960, only with respect to information concerning the three murdered women. At this time, there was no reason to question him concerning the three murdered women or to question him concerning his activities. The report continues. Subsequent to this first interview, information was given us that Chester Weger had once been involved in a rape, but never prosecuted, and also he had been seen by guests of the lodge at various parts of the park. On March 20th, 1960, so again, that's just two days later, we again interviewed subject and asked him to account for his activities on March 14th, 1960. And then the memo summarizes what Chester told them. And then the report continues. Weger was asked about his buckskin jacket. I have a buckskin jacket at home. I was wearing it until the Tuesday after the women were killed. I have the jacket at home now. He talks about shoes. Chester says you can see any of this. The report continues. On March 26, 1960, we contacted Weger again and asked if he would take us to his home and show us his jacket and shoes. This is in the week after the bodies are found, Whitney. He agreed, and we proceeded to LaSalle to his home at 10.30 a.m. Upon our arrival there, Weger's mother-in-law advised us that his wife was at the laundromat wearing the jacket. He showed us chicken picture that. Yeah. He showed yeah. us the light brown buckskin shoes, and there was no type of discoloration on the shoes, nor was there any indication that they had been recently cleaned. Next paragraph. We then drove over to the laundromat where Weger got the jacket from his wife. We drove to a church a block away and took two pictures of Weger wearing the jacket. Next paragraph. This jacket is of suede buckskin with tassels on the front sleeves. The jacket is rather dirty, but there was some reddish soiling on the right sleeve tassels. Corporal Raisins took one of the stained tassels and on our return to the lodge, gave same to Chief Morris to take to the crime lab in Springfield. This jacket didn't appear to have been cleaned recently either. And then the final paragraph says, this subject has been charged with rape when he was 14 years of age, but charges were not pressed. He was also AWOL from the Marine Corps on two occasions and was having personal difficulty with his wife. He received a general discharge from the service because of the difficulty with his wife. This subject volunteered this information. He also consented to a polygraph test and has been submitted and passed. Okay, what does all this mean? Several points I want to make. This memo, though, incredible. 
Chester was interviewed three times by the Illinois State Police in March of 1960, in the week following the murders. The first one on March 18th, two days after the women's bodies were found. Chester Weger did not get rid of the jacket. He had no reason to. Chester Weger did not clean the jacket. He had no reason to. The Illinois State Police inspected the jacket, even took a tassel from the jacket, sent it to the crime lab. This is in March. Chester Weger consented to a polygraph, and he passed. He volunteered all his personal information, what he was doing. Uh, all this was known to the Illinois State Police, but here's the most telling part. There is nothing in that report, even after they go back and talk to him a second time and a third time, there is nothing in there about Chester having scratches on his face, anything about his physical appearance at all, conducted by three Illinois State Police officers who are questioning him about the murders, whose job it is to investigate and be skeptical and look at you, unlike, you know, people working at the lodge. And there is nothing in there about scratches. So what do you say to all of that? That, I mean, my my gut reaction is that later when the trial comes around, that just, it's a reconstructed narrative. It's a reconstructed narrative with false memories from witnesses because it just simply couldn't have been at the time. The jacket, the scratches, it's not consistent, right? To me, this, this is just, I don't know, I'm not a judge, but it's just to me, this just what you're telling me here is enough to go, look, this is not a plausible explanation for what happened. You know, I think my favorite part of that two-page report is when they want to see the jacket, Chester's wife is wearing it. Wearing at it. At the laundromat, right? You know, if there's a bloody jacket and you just bludgeon three people, Okay. Do you keep the jacket? Your wife's not wearing it at the laundromat? Really? I mean, could there be a more innocuous kind of explanation of where the jacket was when they go to see it? That that to me does not speak of a guilty man, right? Who's who's trying to cover up a crime. Is it, this the jacket obviously did not mean anything to him, that, you no. know. So his wife wears it. Now, just a little side note on this jacket. This jacket went on to have a second life in that it was uh it was kept as evidence. And then for years, people who grew up in LaSalle County remember going as school children to the courthouse and they would take out the jacket and pass it around. And it's like, hey, a bunch of second graders, you guys want to try the jacket on? I mean, that's so weird and macabre to me. You know, I made this argument when I was asking for the court's permission to view the physical evidence, including the jacket. Mm -hmm. The Will County State's attorney, as I've said, objected to that. The Will County State's Attorney did not want me to even look at the physical evidence. And I argued that very point to the court. And I said something like, you know, Girl Scout Pack 402 <laughs> has had more access to this physical evidence than me. And the judge actually repeated that remark in his ruling, allowing me to have access to look at the physical evidence. Mm -hmm. I mean, the lack of respect for the integrity of the physical evidence, because not only that, we know that the gentleman who wrote the book about the Star Rock murders, if you're watching the HBO documentary, mm -hmm. apparently has Chester's original confession in his possession. How does he have that? Yeah, he has the confession, the, the murder, the alleged murder weapon, right? The the wooden tree branch was shellacked and then was displayed on, on Bill Dummett's mantle and then apparently loaned out every once in a while to other people that wanted to display it. Who does that? And then one more, Dave Reculia had Chester's juvenile records. I'm not yeah. suggesting... Dave did anything wrong in getting them. My point is he shouldn't have them. Those are those should be in a court file. Chester tried to get them, went to the 
the court file and they said, we don't have anything. So you've got all these people who've got evidence that they shouldn't have. It just shows you how the case was treated, how the evidence was treated. It is very, very telling. I think what's just really disheartening to me as just a citizen, right, who who wants to be treated with dignity and respect as I go through the criminal justice system, so much of this case turned into souvenirs, yeah. right? So much, so much of the evidence ended up in this weird souvenir culture that built up around these crimes. And, and that to me is just so shameful. I, I don't really have, I don't have adequate words to describe kind of how disgusting and upsetting it is to me that people like who, what's a second grader should not be trying on the jacket supposedly worn <laughs> during a triple homicide. No. And, and the, the detective in the case like the detectives, why is it even part of a field trip? Why? Why, why are they even being shown this? Exactly. Aren't and they it, supposed to go to a zoo or an art museum? I mean, why are they being shown evidence of a crime scene? It, to make this like slightly analogous to other big cases, it's like you know, it would be like after the OJ trial, the detectives keeping the the murder weapon and putting it on display above their mantle. Like you would, yeah. that would be so unacceptable, Absolutely. right? But for some reason, it was okay in the case of Chester Weger. So we've talked about the jacket. The state tried to make a big deal of the jacket. They tried to build a case about the scratches. Let me talk about another one, uh, the cord. I've seen it referred to as cord, twine, string. I'm going to call it twine. Okay, so the state introduced the twine found around Miss Odin's wrist. Remember, as we discussed last week, there was no tension on the twine. It was loose. There were no marks on Miss Odin's wrist. So the state called Glenn Kamadi as a witness, who's the chef at Starve Rock, he also orders the twine for the Starve Rock Lodge. He testified he would order 12-ply and 20-ply. Let's pause. As we discussed in episode six, 20-ply is very common and is noted in the Chicago Tribune, March 21st, 1960 newspaper article. It quoted the crime lab report. It says, the report covered mainly the twine, which was found around the wrists of Miss Murphy and Miss Odin, this was 20-strand twine used for tying parcels, deep-freeze packages, and meat in butcher shops. Okay, and it also said in that article that there was another piece of twine found near the mouth of the cave. It was 20-strand tied with a granny knot to a piece of 10-strand. So I went back to my file. I pulled those handwritten notes from March 21st, 1960, that treasure trove of information. And again, these are either from the sheriff's office or the state's attorney's office. Those notes indicate the twine around Miss Odin's wrist was 20-ply. And the notes also state that there was a piece of 20-ply twine found in the cave knotted to a piece of 10-ply twine. So here's the crucial point. Lodge employee Glenn Kamadi says he orders two types of twine, 20-ply and 12-ply. He makes no mention of 10-ply. This is huge. It shows that the 10-ply twine could not have come from the kitchen at the Starve Rock Lodge. Mm -hmm. That is a huge point. Okay, so let's discuss the 20-ply twine. On cross-examination, attorney McNamara questioned Kamadi about the 20-ply twine. And I love this. He asked him these questions, and he says, I'll just read this to you. He says, in fact, it's very common string, isn't it? Answer, well, I don't know about that. (laughs) So, you know, Kamadi doesn't want to admit the truth. He says, question, well, now in your experience as a buyer, wouldn't you say that this is very common type of string? Answer, yes. Question, it is? Answer, it is. Question, and it could be obtained almost any place, can't it? 
Answer, I buy it from a couple or three different companies. So this 20-ply twine, there is nothing unique about it. They try to tie it to the lodge. It's common. You could buy it anywhere. And they don't even talk about the 10-ply twine found at the crime scene that does not come from the lodge. So again, with the twine, they're trying to construct a case and a narrative that was simply based on nothing. Let me talk about another one in the trial, this constant surveillance of Chester Weger. We've talked about this, how in October, Chester was being surveilled, right? Remember us talking about this? Yeah. Uh-huh. I think it's very easy. You know, when I say it, you're like, ah, uh, you know, was he really surveilled? Is that just Chester's imagination? You know, were they really following him? It's easy to kind of dismiss that and be like, I don't know if I really believe that. It's not a big deal. Well, <laughs> it was a big deal. At trial, Chester's attorney, Mr. McNamara, calls William Morris, superintendent of the Illinois State Police, and he says, this is the question. I'm going to read, the, I'm going to read this verbatim. Question. If you know, Chief, let me ask you this. Did you issue an order placing Chester Otto Weger, the defendant in this case, under a 24-hour surveillance at any time, and if so, when? Answer. Captain Tofant and I met with former state's attorney and sheriff of this county. At that time, they requested us to place him under investigation. That is to place the defendant under a surveillance of 24 hours. He was placed under a 24-hour surveillance. Question, and how many officers were there involved? Answer, there were eight. Oh my God. So 24-hour surveillance, eight officers, and you know what? Requested by the former state's attorney, which is Harlan Warren, Mm -hmm. and the sheriff's office, they're requesting it. Why? And there's one more. McNamara calls Robert Murphy, a state police officer, and he asked him questions. And I thought this was really interesting. He says, so Murphy's part of this surveillance team. And the question from Nackmare is, and do you remember the date that you were assigned that job? Answer, it was the second week of October. Question, and how long did you continue this surveillance? The day prior to the arrest. Can you believe that? From the second week of October until mid-November, 24-7 surveillance of Chester Weaker. So let me let me pause here, Whitney. How outrageous is it that they are doing this? Why are they doing it? It's obvious to break Chester down. And let me ask you this question, Whitney. Why didn't Harlan Warren and Bill Dummett and all these cronies, why didn't they do a 24-7 surveillance of Glenn Palmatier? Why didn't they do a 24-7 surveillance of William Palmatier? Why didn't they commence psychological warfare for the Palmatier brothers? Why didn't they take hair samples of the Palmatier brothers? Why didn't they give the Palmatier brothers six, seven polygraphs like they did to Chester Weger? I mean, can you believe this, Whitney? This makes my head explode. Yeah. Reading that and hearing that kind of constant surveillance is mind-blowing. And to think the way they treated Chester Weger and the way they just gave the Palmatier brothers a pass. Oh, passed polygraph. You know, go on your way. Well, one um, of them passed a polygraph. The other one, we didn't. We didn't. We didn't get around to actually, you know, yeah, polygraphing yeah. him. But, but he seems like a legit guy. Whitney, when you see how the Palmatier brothers 
were swept under the rug in October of 1960. And then the enormous pressure intentionally placed on Chester Uyghur in October and November of 1960. It's just hard to fathom. But it all seems so obvious now what's going on. A diabolical plan to break Chester Uyghur and pin the Star Rock murders on him. So Whitney, I've talked about the whole trial was based on this phony baloney confession that everybody knew was bogus. They had to try to bootstrap their case with other circumstantial evidence. Mm -hmm. We talked about the jacket. We talked about the scratches. We talked about the twine. We talked about the surveillance. I have got so much more to talk about, Whitney. I'm not going to be able to get it done. I could talk (laughs) for another hour. We're going to have to have a part two just about the trial because I still want to talk about the murder weapon. Yeah. I want to talk about Chester's testimony. I want to talk about the threats. I want to talk about so many more things. I've got a whole nother episode about that. Let me just say, in doing this, as I sit here right now, I'm flooded with emotion because reading this, knowing what we know now, knowing that they knew the confession was bogus, knowing that they knew about the Palmetier brothers and the Lois Selensek memo, putting this trial together and seeing it and how they presented the case. And I'm going to talk more about how I think they misrepresented evidence and uh, were not fair about things. Mm -hmm. I've got so much more to talk about. We're going to have to take a break. I've got to decompress. (laughs) We got to get out and hit the the rest area, go in and get some food, fill the car (laughs) up with gas. This road trip is only halfway over. We got a lot more to talk about and I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation. Oh, I am too. I am too. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale. I could talk about Chester Uyghur's criminal trial for days, and we're going to. I'm going to be back next Thursday with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss, part two of Chester's criminal trial. Also, visit our website, especially this week. We are posting on there some incredible photographs taken back in the day at Chester's criminal trial. Photographs in the courtroom of Chester his attorney, John McNamara, the prosecutors, the scene inside the courtroom, the scene outside the courtroom. You're really going to want to check those photos out. Go to andyhillpodcast.com. If you know anything about the Starbuck murders, please email us. No information or tip is too small. We need your help. And if you know anyone out there that you think was wrongfully convicted, if there's another Chester Uyghur out there, would love to hear about it. Please reach out. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It means so much to Whitney and me. This show is produced in collaboration with Phineas Ellis. Sound designed by Studio D. Design, content, and promotion by Bell and Ivy. And hosted by myself and Whitney Braun. We'll see you next time.